Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we know that the word of God is live and it, it touches the, the hearts of people in ways that nothing else can. And preaching is truly foolishness. But what can a man say that can solve the deepest problems of the human heart? And so our prayer is that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart upon your word, that your word would speak to us of eternal things, that by the power of the Spirit we would understand what it is that we read and then apply it appropriately so that we would be faithful in becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so for that reason, we humbly ask, God, bless the reading of your word. And the people of God said together, Amen. Would you stand with me, as our custom is when we read the scriptures, to read the 12th chapter, the 12th verse. Now, you will remember that in the 11th chapter, Jesus did his final, his final miracle in the Gospel of John. He rose or raised a man from his death, a man named Lazarus. He had been dead over three days. He was dead and buried. You could say he was dead as a doornail. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he came out. The end of that chapter says, and when the Jews saw this, they made plans to kill Jesus and Lazarus. In verse 12, we hear of John continuing to write. He says, the next day a great crowd that had come from the fest for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written... I think I advanced that. Sorry. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Uh, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, the whole wor world, no, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I have discovered something that many of you probably knew about for five to ten years. It's called YouTube. Do you know what a YouTube is? It's a, it's a I don't know what it is, but it's, a, it's on the internet. And it's a place where you can go and actually watch all kinds of videos. People, people put embarrassing, embarrassing videos of themselves singing on YouTube. Uh, don't watch those. They're really not that good. Um, but there are others that are really quite interesting. And I stumbled across some, um, some videos that were made by Orthodox Jews 
who titled their videos, Saving Jews from Christians. And I thought, now that's interesting. And so as I clicked and listened to the video, one of the things that astounded me was there was a very intelligent man who obviously was Jewish who was talking about the myths of the Christian faith and why Jesus was not the Messiah. And he went on to list almost 20 different things as far as he was concerned that proved that Jesus was not who he said he was. Well, as I watched that and I pondered what he was thinking, I began to think to myself, well, how do you rebut that? How do you, how do you make someone see that Jesus was who he says he was? Well, it's in that vein that John is writing his gospel this morning. Did you know that? You see, John wasn't writing just to people like us who were Gentiles, meaning not born in a Jewish family. He was writing to Jews as well. And the most amazing thing is as you look through this passage, you begin to realize that the Jews hated Jesus. Why? Because he made himself to be God. And one of the things that you have to wrestle with as a Christian is the truth that Jesus is such a divisive, not just person of history, but a person of presence because that division still happens today. Why do you? believe in Jesus? What evidence can you give that he is who he says he is? And the most astounding thing is that we're, we're given in the Gospels huge numbers of signs that confirm that Jesus indeed was who he, who he said he was and is the fulfillment of God's promise from the Old Testament. And so in this passage we read this morning, one of the things that John wants you to see is he wants you to see that the truth is that this king that they promised, or God promised, the Israelites in the Old Testament had finally arrived. The king had come. You see, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. The last sign that he gave, and by raising that man from the dead, he did something no one, no one had ever seen in their lifetime, but had happened in the Old Testament. When a prophet had spoken and God raised a person from the dead. And so the question then comes, well, why would they kill him? Well, the answer is because they did to Jesus what they did to their own prophets in the Old Testament. They killed them too. You see, it's the amazing thing that John describes for us in the first chapter of John, that Jesus is the light of God that comes into a world that doesn't want God doesn't want to yield, doesn't want to know, doesn't want to follow God. And so when you look at the world as we see it today, look what's happening in our culture, look what's happening in, in our own cities and towns, look what's happening in our state, our world, you see two strains of things going on. One is the embracing of God and one a rejection of God. Why is that happening? It's because the world is in darkness and that darkness was created by the rebellion of men and women from the day they were born all the way back to Adam and Eve when they first sinned. It's why sometimes it explains why you can't get along with the people in your own family. It's because of sin. It has such a potent power that it divides and destroys and separates people. And in so doing, it dishonors the purpose of God and is creating you. You see, in the beginning, God created you to know him, to love him, 
to have peace in your mind so that you don't stay up at 3 o'clock in the morning worrying about things. God created you in such a way that you would have fellowship with others where there would never be any, any animosity. God created you to live in the world in perfect harmony and peace. And when sin entered the world, it destroyed every bit of that and plunged this world into a darkness that basically rejects God and his reign. Now, many people don't want to hear that. Maybe you don't. I remember when I was little, before I came to know Christ, I, I didn't want anything to do with God. I thought God would be a joy killer. You ever felt that way? I thought if you followed God, you'd never have any fun in life. I thought if you followed God, there would never be anything to look forward to the next day. And I had suddenly came to a place in my life where I realized, boy, well, that, was, that was darkness. When John writes this morning, he writes about three things about this Jesus who's come to be our king. Please notice first that the king is acknowledged. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go back to the text and you look very carefully, when John begins to write this particular passage, he says the next day, verse 12, a crowd had come for the feast. What feast? Probably the Feast of Tabernacles. That feast we've been talking about the last three or four chapters. That feast that remembered how God delivered the Jews from slavery and brought them out of Egypt and brought them into a land of prosperity and said, if you will love and worship me and follow me, I will bless you in your land. But the day you turn away from me, you will, you will reap curses. Your land won't produce. Your, your, your women will not bear children. Your enemies will devour you. In other words, you'll return to the darkness. The most amazing thing is when you read this, that it was during this feast, it must have meant that there were throngs of people, throngs of people in Jerusalem. I, some of you don't know this, I'm from Darlington, South Carolina. Do, do you know what's happening this weekend in Darlington? Yeah, there's a race going on. Do you know where I am this weekend? Here. Because when I left Darlington, I thought I'd never see NASCAR again. I thought if I followed God, I would never have to worry about NASCAR ever again. And look where God's placed me. Well, it must have been like that in Jerusalem that throngs of people had gathered for various reasons and intent and they had heard, if they hadn't heard before, they had heard about this Jesus. What had they heard? They had heard of the miracles that he had done. And when they heard he was coming into the city, what did they do? They began to grab branches and began to shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why is that so important? Well, that word Hosanna means give salvation now. And it's actually quoting from Psalm 118.25. Psalm 18.25 is a psalm of David. It's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm that speaks about God's great work. And it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. What are they saying? Well, Every time the Jews had been oppressed, 
God had sent someone to bring salvation for them, to release them from the oppression that they were undergoing. And when you go back to the recent history of what happened in their day, there were two brothers called Maccabees who, who literally began to riot and to try to overthrow the oppressors of the Jewish people this is between the Testaments, at the close of the Old Testament, before the New Testament is written. These men worked hard, feverishly, to throw out these, these Gentiles who were going even into their temple and taking pigs and slaughtering them on the altars, which were a complete abomination to the Jewish people. And so these rioters, these revolters, these people who were guerrilla warfare specialists fought against and drove out their enemies in such a way that for the first time since the time of the kings in the Old Testament, the Jews were free as a people. And it colored everything about how they saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Because their anticipation of the Messiah that God would send would be a conquering hero who would bring salvation and success to them as a people to overthrow their enemies. But there's a problem. The problem comes in the second verse, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, why is that a problem? Well, if you go back to Zechariah 9, 9, you will, you will see that the Jews were told by the prophet that this Messiah would not come on a white horse. He would ride a donkey. What's the meaning of the donkey? Peace. You see, the image that John is giving us is this Jesus who came to fulfill the Old Testament is fulfilling a part of the scriptures the Jews were blind to see and still are today. That this Jesus who came as king, as prophet, as priest, was a king who had come not like others who had come to force by human will, exertion, power, manipulation, God's will upon other people, that this king was coming with the offer of peace that would not be forcing others to yield. What do I mean by that? Well, every war that we have had in the world has been a war where we seek to overthrow another government and make it submit to our will. So when you think of what happened when we went into Iraq and Iran, when you think of what's happened in Afghanistan, what was going on, there was an attempt to exert military force in such a way that we'd walk in, conquer, and make people submit to the will. And throughout human history, no matter what war you think of, every war had that endeavor. In World War II, there was a man named Adolf Hitler who had determined that he was leading a people who were a pure race people. They were better than everyone else, and therefore they deserved the right to conquer and to submit everyone else to their reign. And he was building what was called the Third Reich. His ambition was to make the whole world submit to his will. This is the history of humanity. 
And when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, he completely eviscerates that vision of the Messiah who would come. It would not be that kind of Messiah. He would ride on the, don he would ride on the back of a donkey. He would come in the name of peace. You see, the, the acknowledgement here is important because we interpret that as weakness. That this Jesus didn't come with a military might and rush into Jerusalem and stab some people and overthrow them and kill them and get them out of the way, much like our political parties are thinking this day. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you really believe that the real problems of our nation can be solved by eliminating the other party. You see, that's the way the human endeavor is. We believe in conquering and forcing our will on others. But that will never bring salvation. Why? It will only bring submission and oppression. And yet this king who would come would be different from that. This Jesus would not come to force himself on you. He would not come with a sword to make you bow before him or lose your life in the sense that somehow he would take it from you. No, no, not at all. This king would be different. How would he be different? Well, he comes gentle and riding on a donkey. And so in that vein, it's an invitation to bow voluntarily before him. And when you hear people talking about their conversion and hearing the gospel, I have never heard anyone say, well, I heard the gospel and I immediately realized that if I didn't repent and believe in Jesus, um, he was going to get me. Never heard that. The conversions I hear of people talking about their coming to Christ is when I heard of my sin and how I had offended God and how I had violated his laws and how lost I was in the darkness of this world and that God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. When I understood this, God loved me. And he loved me so much that he became flesh and dwelt among us and suffered for me what I deserved. I fell on my knees and said, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. You see, that's the kind of conversion that the Bible talks about. And so in light of that, when Jesus comes into our lives, it's never with this militant approach. It's always with this gentle wooing of, of people from their sins. By the way, have you ever tried to tell someone they're sinning? You ever tried to do that? I would come in and I was having a full day and I'd walk in and I'd think, oh man, there's some chocolate macadamia nut cookies in the pantry. And I know I shouldn't have one, but it's right before supper and I can't help it. I want to go in and get one. So I walk in there and someone from my family says, don't eat anything because we're getting ready to have supper. Now, how do you respond to that? I know you men. I'm, I'm talking to you men. I know. Well, who are you to tell me what to eat? And so what do you do? You go grab the cookie and you stuff half of it in your mouth just in front of the person so you, they understand that you're not going to be told what to do. Right? There it is. There's the problem. And so if you and I go out into the world and we share gospel and we say, hey, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. Guess what you just did? 
you have created resistance to hearing of God's love. Resistance, not invitation. This is why the gospel is such a powerful message because it doesn't come and force itself on people. It is gentle and it is meek. And the most amazing thing is that this Jesus who comes, he comes to take away the enmity that we have in our hearts. This is the way it's expressed in the psalm. It says he takes away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. What's a war horse? I, I, don't, I don't ride horses, but every time I'm around one, I'm intimidated. Are you? That's a pretty big animal. And the war horse was trained for the purpose of the rider being able to ride it into battle and the horse would literally trample the person in front of it. And so the imagery there is that Jesus comes not in the vein of trying to use military power to sway people's minds or hearts or their affections. He comes to remove the barriers that create the tension that people don't want to bow. And even more so, he comes to break the battle bow. What does that mean? You know, that battle bow where we, we immediately begin to put up walls of defensiveness, you know? <laughs> Don't you dare tell me how to live. Don't you dare tell me what to do. Don't you dare try to correct me. This is what he comes to shatter. How does he do it? By being gentle and meek. The most amazing thing is that when you look at this, it comes to the second part of this king, and that is he will provide or proclaim peace to the nations. How will he do that? Do you know how many nations, do you know how much war we have had since Christ has walked the earth? You say, how has he, how has he given peace to the world? We've had more wars since he's walked the earth than, when he, than before he came. Then how does this, this Jesus bring peace? He does it by the invitation of the gospel that he came to suffer for us. And in that message, people hear it, and they in every nation, tribe, and tongue, even in China today. Do you all know that? Even in China, the church of Jesus Christ is more numerous than in the history of the Communist Party. And the Communist Party has done everything it can to eradicate Christians. Why? Because Jesus is at work. Not only that, his rule extends from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And so the imagery there is that this message of this kingdom that Christ comes to reign has no political boundaries. We don't need walls to keep people out because there are no walls, boundaries. There are people who are coming to Christ in every place when they hear the gospel. And even more exciting is when you begin about thinking about this king, not only it speaks about the fact that we acknowledge or John is acknowledging Jesus as this king who has come, his nature, his unique order of his realm. In other words, the realm he establishes in the hearts of those who believe in him are really quite powerful. They are non-militaristic. We are not out to force people. We're out to present the gospel so that they may be transformed. It is not only non-militaristic, it's divisive. 
Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And when he spoke that in the Gospels, he was talking about that message of the Gospel when it goes out that there will be people within families, some who will believe and some who won't. Why? Because they don't want the God who created them. They want to be God. They want to decide what is right and wrong. They want to live their own way apart from God. And in that vein, they are part of the darkness of the earth. So what do you do about that? Do you get angry? Do you shoot them? Do you walk up and just stab them and say, okay, we're going to eliminate you. You don't believe in Jesus? Is that it? No. No, the, the prayer is that the gospel would have effect in such ways that it would bring them to faith in Christ. Some of you have people in your family this morning who you know are far from God. It kind of reminds me of a woman who was a member of our church years ago whose husband wouldn't darken the door of a church. He had grown up in the South. He was a good old boy. He knew all about Jesus. But his heart was not transformed. And so she came to me one day and she says, I'm really trying to get this boy, this man, this husband of mine to believe in Jesus and come to church. And I said, okay, uh, Peggy, what do, you, what do you want to do? How are you doing this? She said, well, I got up the other day and I cooked him breakfast. I said, well, that's a good start. She said, I made him eggs and bacon and toast and put it on the plate. I said, oh, that, yeah, that's, man, what, any husbands here that would be upset over that, right? And then she said, when we sat down and we started eating, we got to a place where I felt there was an opening, and I just simply said to him, you're going to hell. And I said, well, how did he respond? And she said, he got up and walked out. I said, well, how does that, how does that work for you? Is that working good? didn't understand. Well, he ought to. See, the only thing that can change a human heart is God. And the only way God can change a human heart is through the gospel. And the only way the gospel can be adequately and completely communicated is through love and patience and meekness. Because we will never force anyone to believe in Jesus. But we can tell them how much God loves them. And how he died for them. And longs for them to return to him. There's a big difference, isn't it? Huge difference. When John is writing his gospel... He is seeing something that we see today. He is seeing a man who raised people from the dead coming into Jerusalem who everyone should be falling on their knees saying, may he reign forever. And there are large numbers of people who do not want him. And all they can think about is killing him. That's all they can think about. 
And so when you talk about Jesus, wherever you are, do not be surprised if you find people being divided. Even off-putting. Maybe even rude to you. It's not because of you. It's because of where they are with their relationship with God. They're separated from him and in darkness. They don't see. They don't understand. And the only one that can change that is Jesus. The third and most important thing this morning is this universal kingship that Jesus has. Do you know that song, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun? Is there anywhere the sun doesn't shine? Eventually? No. And there's our joy. What we're going to see in the next 10 years is it's going to be harder to live for Christ than it ever has been. It's going to be more difficult to remain pure. It's going to be more challenging to live a good life as a disciple of Christ. But the powers of darkness will not have victory. Why? Why do you say that? Because Jesus' kingship is universal. He will reign forever. be ashamed of him don't be afraid to resist what is evil and when you falter don't flee from his presence run to him and he will forgive you and cleanse you and strengthen you Our gracious God and our Father, as we live in the days that we live and we find the struggles we face, whether it's through TV or newsprint or the internet, there is a lot of division in the world. We know that people who invented some of this media did so for the purpose of increasing anger. Because the more angry we are, the more we're likely to respond to what we read. And by doing so, we actually create more opportunity for companies to make money in advertisement through these mediums. Because they'll buy space on their web pages. Or through their media, they will be able to charge more. Because they allow some post to be placed on the internet that inflames people, that angers us, that causes us to want to take things into our own hands in anger. And 
this is not the way of Jesus Christ. You tell us that we are to be angry because anger in itself is not a sin. It is an emotion you have given us to recognize when things are not right. But in the same words that you tell us to be angry, you then teach us, but do not sin with your anger. This is why we need Jesus as our king, our prophet, our priest. Because God, we are a people who are prone to, in our anger, hurt others. Falsely accuse, even call people who tell the truth they are liars. Anger has a tremendous, potent power. And the sin that we have in our hearts will sometimes give an excuse in the name of Jesus to hurt others. And it's wrong. The problem is that sin blinds us. It blinds us to seeing the truth. Therefore, we cry out to you, God, let your light shine and help us to follow the path you have chosen, that you are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, both now and forever. And the people of God said together,